Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, so welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate, and I have my friend Dana Dane. Known you a long time. You've got an amazing story. I know I don't have a lot of um, women speakers out here. I know you got, you know, badass recovery, and I thought it'd be cool to have you come on the show. Well, thank you, Brian. Um, so I suppose I'll just start, you know, from the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. So I am a local here in Florida. You know, I, I was born in Hollywood, Florida, and um, I was raised by my grandparents since the age of three. Um, I remember always feeling very, very different um, because at that time, like people consider that broken. And my grandparents gave me stability growing up. But I remember because it was my grandfather and my grandmother picking me up from school, it was that difference, right? So I remember the first thing I always wanted was to be able to fit in, right? And because of that, people made fun of me in school because of it. Mm -hmm. So long story short. Um, and why did you live with your grandparents? Uh, my mother and my father were addicted to drugs. Born did you know that growing up? Um, no, my grandparents did a pretty good job at hiding it from me until I started to ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother would tell me, you know, you don't want to be like your father. Your father's in and out of jail. He does, you know, drugs. And it started to make sense back in the day when I was a kid and they, they taught us about dare. Mm -hmm. But then curiosity when I got old enough of like what kept my father away from me, you know, and that's when I started to dibble dabble in mood or mind altering substances. Mm -hmm. So growing up, you started getting picked on. Why? Well, I was considered different. You know, um, I had a lazy left eye growing up, so I had to wear a patch over my right eye. In the 90s, you had the big Coke can glasses. Wow. So the kids would always make fun of me. And then when I moved from Miami back up to Broward County, I was the new kid in school. And at that time, I had hit my growth spurt, and I was the tallest girl in school. Mm -hmm. So people made fun of me there, too. And then how did like middle school and high school kind of happen? Well, middle school, I was in band. So you know how that goes when you play an instrument mm -hmm. and I played the flute. So I didn't know that. Yeah. So there was that. Actually, my best friend taught me how to play the flute and mm. um, I became second chair. Um, so it was really good. So like any good addict, you teach us how to do something where we excel at it. Right. Um, got, you know, made fun of that in school. I was like a two by four very, very flat. I would wear um, like a sweatshirt because I was embarrassed of like who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. And then I just remember, you know, starting to get into the gateway drugs. And I remember that every self-conscious thought that I had about myself started to disappear. What age did you start like smoking and drinking? I'd like to say seventh or eighth grade. Probably around there. Mm -hmm. I wasn't like an early, early starter, 
But I do remember the first time stealing anything. It was a pack of cigarettes from my aunt and uncle from their freezer and getting extremely lightheaded from smoking the whole thing and really enjoying it Mm -hmm. at the age of eight. And then it progressed. It did. It progressed. And then um, here comes the fun stuff, I suppose. Um, I started with that. And then eventually, you know, I ended up by catching my first misdemeanor. Um, I got caught stealing something. I guess it's something about, you know, Xanax and the lighting in Walgreens that just makes you want to steal stuff. Mm-hmm. And I got caught with that, caught a misdemeanor, got caught up in the uh, legal system, finished probation there and caught another charge and caught a felony. And before all that had happened and my addiction really took What age was that? Probably 19 for my misdemeanor and 22 for my felony but in between all that time i was always looking for love in the wrong places always externally you know whether it was my boyfriend or my ex-fiance at that time Mm -hmm. you know um i had met my ex-fiance through one of my high school best friends um i had gone up to tallahassee to go see her she was buying marijuana from him and that's how i kind of met him and it took off. She knew that we wouldn't be good for each other. And like we got hooked on a substance where I'm talking about lying, cheating, robbing people. That's where you and I cross paths, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, now that I think about, about it, we met when I got kicked out of middle school and I got sent to uh, it was like the Boys and Girls Club or something. And yeah. I remember like you happened to be in there. And yeah. And like we met up again. I, but I think prior to that, you're still pretty wild. Yeah. Like even before pills. I think what it was for me is that I was always screaming for attention. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't know how to articulate my words properly. I think it was a part of me that was always looking for that lost little girl inside of me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, where's my mother? Where's my father? Where now being in recovery, like I've made peace with that. You know, like my mom did the best decision she could, which was give me stability by giving me full custody to my grandparents, you know, mm-hmm. allowing me to have that stability that she couldn't provide me, you know, but it was during those times growing up that like when we don't want to hear it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And like searching in external things and ending up getting addicted to drugs and alcohol and like thinking like this was it, this was the answer. And I just remember my life spiraling before my eyes, you know, like I, I wanted to go to college. I didn't go to college. Weren't you cheering at the same time too? I was. So uh, you cheered all throughout middle school and high school? I did. I was, I cheered for uh, Miami Elite All-Stars mm-hmm. and then it combined it and made Encore All-Stars. And then I did Top Gun All-Stars and like I had a really good childhood on the outside externally. Like, you know what I mean? Like it looked good. Like I did Girl Scouts growing up. I did... Um, cheerleading, I did basketball, I did volleyball, I did all of those things. But on the inside, I never learned how to express my emotions, never learned how to express my feelings or identify them. I was always taught that children are seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. And from that, I started getting and feeling something from something outside of myself. Um, How did did it start, I guess, with like uh, other drugs? Other drugs? Like doing pills, like were you doing coke a lot back then? No, actually, I was uh, dealing. 
Um, I was dealing Xanax, and um, at that time I was, <laughs> yeah, I was dealing Xanax, and I was out, and my dealer wasn't ready for uh, me to re-up at the time, and um, that's when me and my ex-fiance had met, and he had pulled out um, an OC-80. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was about to have a seizure and I needed to do something. And that's where I got introduced to the opioid epidemic. Um, back then, this is right when pill mill started to pop up. Mm-hmm. And then we got caught up into that whole system. And my life quickly started to spiral mm-hmm. quickly. I think I maybe Did you know that it was addictive when you started doing it? Like, do you know how bad it was in the beginning? No. Actually, I think the first time I did try it was with a person that gave me a blue and he's like, this is a rock set. You should try it. And I got so sick outside of a car mm-hmm. in a cul-de-sac. It was me, my childhood best friend, her boyfriend at the time, my boyfriend at the time. And I just remember puking my, my brains out. I'm like, I never want to touch that again. Yeah. But fast forward four or five years later, here I am doing an Oxy 80, not realizing it's the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Got addicted. I told myself that what I think every addict does, which is justify and rationalize, like I'm not bad, I don't shoot up, mm-hmm. like I'm good, you know? Yeah, I, I remember um, the day that, cause we had like known each other through just like mutual friends. I would like see you at parties and like we just had like a couple of the same friends. And I remember uh, there was a party on like Boy Scout where like out in that neighborhood, they would just throw crazy parties. I don't wanna say the kid's name, but he would have like insane parties with like a slip and slide and, a bounce house and shit like that. And I remember being in the car and pulling up and you telling me like, yo, I need blues or oxys or whatever. And I happened to have like four or five and you introduced me to your boyfriend and he was a couple years older than you, which means he was probably like five years older than me, you know? And I remember he was just like, couldn't believe that I had so many at the time. Cause like people didn't really have them back then. You know, people weren't crushing them up and doing them like out in the open. It was like a kind of thing that people like, it wasn't cool to be doing oxys, you no, know? No, it wasn't. Actually, a lot of people shun me from their life. Mm-hmm. Um, when they when you start doing drugs, you can tell. Like, your eyes start to sink in. Um, you start to look really, really, like, you barely have meat on your bones. Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot of people started to stop associating with me. And the, my ex-boyfriend at that time that eventually became my fiancé, and I remember finding out when my childhood best friend did it. And she's like, well, if you ever start shooting up, I'll never talk to you. Mm-hmm. Same thing I said to her. I said, well, fine. If you ever start shooting up, I'm never talking to you. Me and my ex-fiance said the same thing. And then I told him, I'm like, this is not working for me anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like not working for me. So I needed to take it to the next level. And like it became this huge thing. And then like we all started doing it behind each other's back. And like that's where me going in and out of jail came into, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to get help, overdosing in treatment centers, the lying, the manipulating, like. I just felt so lost, like so lost. Like my track Mm -hmm. marks were blacker than the color black. How did you start? Because like, I remember when I got clean, people that were doing it weren't really shooting up yet. Like I was trying to, I remember like Googling online, like how to shoot up Roxy's or how to shoot up Oxy 80s at the time. I just remember like when I was using, people still had jobs and functioning and like we're doing it like kind of like in a fun way. I remember being like strung the fuck out, you know, like I was just... I was not having fun. I wasn't doing it to party. I was just doing it to survive. Me and uh, your ex-boyfriend were like really into robbing people. And I remember like we were like sidekicks. <laughs> like we were just down to rob. I hated you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
I remember you would just be like, yo, if you just got away from Brian, like Brian's just a bad influence. <laughs> yeah. I actually remember a lot of the times that um, my ex would rob a lot of people. But like the funny thing is, is that I would be right alongside doing it with him. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, it wasn't fun. After a while, it was more about survival. You know, it was more about not even getting high. It was just about not being sick anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, and it completely took over our lives. And like, I remember going, stealing stuff and like going to GameStop. With me. Yeah. Yeah. And like guessing just to go get drugs. Like, that's not Yeah, I remember uh, I was like super dope sick and I was like waiting to cop and I didn't have money and I was like thinking of a way to get high and I actually hit up this girl that like lived around the corner from me just to like hang out to get out of the house and I was at her house and I was like strung out on drugs. I can't believe this girl like hung out with me and um, her little brother was like, do you have a PlayStation? And I was just like in my mind like, no, dude, I don't have a fucking PlayStation, you know, like I don't play video games and I remember he was like, Oh, that's so sad. And I was just like, well, I just don't have one. And I remember he gave me his, I think like PlayStation 3 had came out. I don't even remember, but he gave me his old PlayStation 2 with games. And I remember being like, are you this kid serious? Like I couldn't, I was so excited to just sell it for drugs. I remember like once I got it, I just called you and I was like, yo, let's go to GameStop right now. I think I'll never forget the day that you're like, can you come get me? I want to get high. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm at Bar- <laughs> I'm at Central Campus. Where are you at? You're like Western High School. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah, you didn't know how old I was. I didn't. I really didn't. Yeah, I think like during the whole time, there was times where, you know, uh, your ex-boyfriend didn't know how old I was. People we used no. with didn't know how old. People just like assumed that I was in college or something. I also I- think it was part of like we didn't care because we just needed each other mm-hmm. for what we needed each other for. And like looking back at it, like if you really look upon the journey, like who would have thought fast forward nine and a half years later Mm -hmm. when it was really back in 2010 2008 like i don't even know how long that is 12 13 14 years that you would be the man that consecutively reached out to me and said dana when are you gonna pull your head out of your ass Mm -hmm. you know like that would have been that guiding light the man that i couldn't stand that was always trying to jit me over for my drugs to be the guiding light to as you say hell has an exit Mm -hmm. right yeah like who would have thought that so tell me about how like the transition was from like like snorting pills to like when you started shooting up what it was like like you just woke up one day and started doing it well it was to the point where nothing would stay in my nose Mm -hmm. nothing would do it the afrin wouldn't work anymore like you know like it was to the point where like i was tired i was tired of like wasting my drugs i felt Mm -hmm. like i was wasting it you know and my ex had come to the house that day and we had just gotten into a huge fight the day before and he went and I saw his arms and he's like, I went and tried it to make sure it was safe. Mm-hmm. And that was it. We started learning right then and there mm-hmm. and hiding it and like lying like, oh, that's a mosquito bite. Or like it was to the point where like my arms and all of my veins had collapsed where I had to start going in my neck and I almost killed myself several times. Mm-hmm. It was it, it, it's not a life to live. And looking back, like when you're cheerleading, you probably thought that would never happen. No, it wouldn't. I wouldn't happen. I didn't think it would go that far. You know, I do remember eating like special brownies and cookies and Mm -hmm. being high while competing and stuff like that. But like, I never thought that I would be like Peggy the pincushion, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, growing up. When did you start going to jail? And like, what was your interactions in jail like? Honestly, 
In 2010, I was all in there. I was in there. I went in and out a lot. I like to call them little furloughs because I got court ordered to like state funded nonprofit substance abuse treatment centers. But I ended up by going right back because I wasn't ready. But in those times that I was there, I was at peace. I don't know how to explain it, but like those are the first times that I really started to feel as like a fleeting glimpse of hope because I was in the drug unit that they had me there for long term. And I just remember actually being on the phone and it was actually with my best friend. And she was like, you sound so happy. I'm like, I feel a little bit free. Like no one's looking for me from me robbing them. You know, um, no one is, no one can get to me. No one can hurt me. Like I know that I can't get any drugs in here. I mean, I know I can, but it would be a little bit more harder. I literally have not a thing to worry about. Like nothing at all. So you were pretty well off in there. Honestly, I enjoyed, it was to a point where I enjoyed being in there. I actually started to become institutionalized Mm -hmm. because I was in and out, in and out, in and out so much. You know, one time they had uh, transported me custody to custody from here to a substance abuse treatment center and I manipulated the system to get a pass and I ended up by bringing drugs back in. I overdosed twice within 24 hours in their facility and then ended up in North Broward Bureau in a turtle suit for a week and a half. You know, and just looking back on that, it's like, it's crazy how drugs mm-hmm. just like completely take over. Yeah, I remember um, when you started going in and out of jails and just seeing like another mugshot online or whatever, or hearing that you robbed someone. So I just remember hearing like that you had kind of turned into me because I remember when I was using, everyone was like, fuck Brian, he's a scumbag. I would call people for drugs and they knew that I was trying to rob them and be like, oh, come try that shit over here, dog. Nah, I know how you are. You know, like people wouldn't even serve me up because they knew that I was like up to something, you know? Yeah. And I remember just hearing stories like, yo, Dana robbed so-and-so, two bottles of, of blues. Like they're they're looking for her, you know, like that red Mazda you had. I remember like a lot of people were not happy with you just hearing a lot of crazy shit. And I just remember like when we were using, you know, I kind of looked at you as like someone's girlfriend that I used with. And like, I was like, bro, you don't have a fucking habit. Like I have a real habit, you know, like that's how I really thought of it in my mind. I was like, you do pills like for fun with your boyfriend. Like I need this shit. And like when I got clean, just hearing like how bad you got. When I got clean, I kind of thought that there was something wrong with me, that I was the only one who was strung out because no one was that bad at that time. And then almost everybody immediately started shooting Dilaudid's shooting, uh, becoming IV drug addicts. And I remember when Roxy started getting more expensive, people just went to D's and shooting D's. People that used to look at me like, bro, you're a scum, because I smoked crack too, you know? Like no one smoked crack at the time, you know? And our like group of friends at that time. So back then, like I remember like getting clean and thinking that like I was the only one that would really get this bad. And I seen everyone else that we grew up with kind of fall in line. Yeah. You know, it's funny, at like one point when the pill mill started getting shut down, I remember substituting one for another, you know, and then resorting to crack. I was mm-hmm. that addict that I would hit it, puke, and want to hit it again, mm-hmm. and not caring because I just wanted to be outside of myself. Like Until I actually got clean, I was looking for it all outside myself, even for the first couple years clean. I was still looking for validation outside myself, not realizing that I needed to validate myself. I needed to validate my healthy thoughts, my healthy feelings, you know, and I thought drugs had given that to me. One instance when um, 
It was like right before you got clean. You got, I think you went to jail after this, but I remember I was at this meeting and I would see you in and out of the rooms every once in a while. And I remember like when I first started to see you in the rooms, I would be like, Dana, you got to get clean. And you're like, yo, I am clean. And I remember uh, being like, no, you got to get clean off everything. And like, you didn't understand the concept of like not drinking or smoking weed. And I was just trying to explain to you like, look, Dana, like I do it by not using any drugs. Like I don't smoke weed. I don't drink. And you, I remember you just looked at me and you're like, I'm just trying not to put steel in my arm. Yeah. And that was it. And I just remember being like. Like that was a goal. Yeah. Like, that was a high class goal. Just not put steel in my arm. That's yeah. it. You know, that was really a goal of mine. And then years later, I remember I was at a meeting. You know, you see a lot of people come in, in and out that have really bad bottoms. And you see people that are homeless that come in. And I remember being at the 10 o'clock and there was like a crowd of people around somebody. And someone grabbed me and was like, you got to come see this girl. And I was like, what? They're like, you got to see this girl. She's covered in track marks. And sometimes people say they're covered in track marks. I remember when I walked up, there was like a crowd of people like trying to help you. And you really were from like the fingertips to your neck covered in track marks. Like, I don't know if you like shake really bad when you shoot up or something, but like, I remember just being like, how does that happen? You know, it was probably one of the worst things I've seen at a meeting. And then when I recognized that it was you, I was like, oh my God, that's Dana. Because I remember the cheerleader Dana. I remember Dana that was like out at parties doing keg stands and smoking blunts and just chilling and just being like the wild and crazy Dana to like me. I had probably had three, four years at the time. Um, I probably hadn't seen you in a while. And when I walked up and saw you, I was like, oh, my God. I think that's when I really started to like really reach out because I didn't think you're going to live much longer. Yeah, I think uh, not a lot of people. A lot of people thought I was going to make it out of fucking hell, to be honest. Um, I remember, Yeah, no one did. No, even not even my family. Mm -hmm. um, I remember at visitation and I remember picking up the phone and my mom looking at me and she's like, we just put a down payment on your funeral. I said, what? She goes, Dana, I knew as soon as you get out of jail, you're going back ripping and running and like you're going to die just like your father. You know, my, my dad died of the disease of addiction in 2001. Actually, his, to come to find out years later, after I got clean, his heart exploded from doing oxys and doing cocaine. And that's what I was doing. You know, I was shooting speedballs at that time when you saw me covered in track marks, mm -hmm. you know, like it's crazy. And I remember when you would get clean, you know, I would see people that we ran into and I'd be like, yeah, Dana's doing really good. Like she's got 90 days and people would laugh and like make fucked up comments and like, oh, she would never get clean, you know, good riddance. And I remember people being like, yeah, bro, I've seen her at 7-Eleven shooting up in her neck covered in blood like that bitch ain't never going to get clean. It would really bother me because I remember when people used to say stuff like that about me. Like I remember being the one that was out there that was the most out there, you know, like I remember being yeah. the most fucked up out of her whole group of friends and people just turning their backs on me like, bro, that kid is just fucked up. He ain't never going to get it. So I really saw myself in you and other people started to really think that it wasn't possible. Like, it, like she's just beyond help. She ain't going to get it. Yeah. And I really, you know, made it like my personal mission to try and like help you because I just wanted to prove people wrong. Well, I thank you for that because, you know, the constant, like one person, it takes one person, you know, and when I do talk and I do tell my story, I do talk about you. I leave you anonymous, of course, but, you know, I do talk about you that a kid younger than me, because you are a person that I couldn't stand, 
a person that would always try to rob me. Like, I'll never forget. <laughs> I think it was actually you that like me and my ex were like trying to get away from someone from paying them one sided hundred dollar bills one time. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, maybe I think it was you and like two other people chasing us and we had to hide in the woods in his truck. I think it was you. I'm not sure. I was very heavily under the influence, <laughs> but like it's it's crazy to think the wild stuff that we do, mm -hmm. you know, like and it's just like I thank you for that, for not giving up because like I, I potentially could have been six foot under and I would not have the life that I do have from mm -hmm. being clean. So after that, I think you went to jail a couple times when you would go to meetings. Why do you think it wouldn't work? Because I didn't want it like a good addict. I like to rebel. You tell me what to do, I'm going to show you that it works every other way. I think after I got off probation, after doing about a year in county, I ran really, really hard. And then I said, I think it's a great idea to get clean. And I remember <laughs> uh, my best friend would always call me and be like, I'm going to treatment. <laughs> Will you come to treatment with me? I'm like, I ain't going to no treatment. I'm like, I'm going to die just like my father to the disease of addiction. Get the hell out of here. Like, I'm not getting clean. And I remember calling her and I said, well, I think I'm going to go get clean. She's like, no, you're not. I said, I promise you I'm going into treatment. I said, my phone's getting turned off. This is where I am. So you've always asked me for the, throughout the years if I would want to get clean with you and go to treatment. I said, this is where I'm going and this is where I'll be. Next day she showed up. Wow. Yep. And that's where the journey started to begin you know, and, um, I and how was like that first year? Because like, you know, I see pictures, you know, like I see the picture and like, honestly, like I had the same experience, just, uh, you know, that first year clean is really something so special that like, I think, you know, you don't realize it when you're in it that like, it'll never be like that again. Like those first, that first year clean is so spiritual and in its own fucked up way, because you don't even know what spirituality is. You're just happy to be clean. You're just, you know, we'd go to karaoke and like the keys and like fucking all this shit and all the people that you become best friends with in two days and you're hanging out and going to the beach. I just remember when I first got clean, it's not the way it used to be. That's for sure. Like things change. It always does. But I just remember it would always be a huge group of us everywhere we went. And I think what makes it so spiritual, <laughs> and this is just my perception, which I may be quite frankly wrong, I didn't have a lot of awareness. Mm -hmm. So I was out living my best life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I was having fun. I was staying out doing uh, like four or five meetings a day, then hitting Denny's and coming home. You know, mm -hmm. like I was learning how to live life without the use of drugs, you know, going to different gatherings all over South mm -hmm. Florida with a bunch of people that were living clean, mm -hmm. you know, and they were showing me how to live. But at the same time, like they say your first year is free, like it is, but also like I went through a lot of trials and tribulations too. Like I went through an untopic pregnancy at six months clean and mm -hmm. like I wanted to get high every single day, but like I, I used my friends that were clean to lean on and like literally walk through it. Mm -hmm. What was uh, your experience with like sponsorship like, like your first year? Oh God, sponsorship is the most, the most beautiful level of service. It is the first relationship that shows you how to really be intimate while being clean. That relationship that um, shows you how to be completely honest, not with just yourself, but with others when you don't have the courage to, but you need to. That's my favorite level of service besides, you know, convention level service is sponsorship. 
What was your sponsor like? My first sponsor. <laughs> was she crazy? My first sponsor <laughs> told me to sit down, excuse my friend, shut the fuck up, take the cotton out of my ears and put them in my mouth. She also told me to get the relationship with the literature of the 12-step fellowship that I was in and still am in and a proud member of. Mm-hmm. And she told me that to get a relationship with it because there's going to be times that she's not going to be able to answer. And the only thing between me and a bad decision is God in the literature. Mm-hmm. So I made sure to get that relationship with her and the literature and the higher power. What were some experiences like when you first got clean? Because like, you know, no one gets clean and just thinks that it's going to just last forever. Like I had like weeks where I just didn't think I was going to stay clean. And then I'd have I'd hear a speaker that just blew me away. And then like I would stay clean off that for a couple more months. And then I'd be doubting my recovery again. And then it would happen again and again. Like what were some things that happened during that first year? So my first year, that didn't happen for me. To be quite frankly honest, that's kind of happening now. Mm-hmm. especially during um, the, the coronavirus, if I'm being completely transparent. There has been times that I've completely um, questioned my membership and the fellowship that I am in. But the traditions of it says the only requirement for membership. But once I say I'm a member, I do, do know that it comes with responsibility. And the responsibility is home group, sponsor, step work, right? So that's what I continue to remind myself. And one of the literature pieces is um, it says that complacency is a, a clean time killer. And it also says that just to sit your ass in a meeting, mm-hmm. it, it says that, you know, and I actually took a commitment and I'm doing a 12 step series right now, you know, because during this time, it's really, really easy to become invisible, mm-hmm. especially during For coronavirus. Sure. You know, like we can all have a first step, but where's my second and my third? Who am I telling to be restored to sanity? Where am I turning it over? Because I think the hardest part with the third step, honestly, is I have no problem turning it over. I can make that decision. But my issue is trust, trusting. And when I stop trusting is when I take my will back. What about, um, so like I know that, you know, people that are constantly in relationships while they're using, it's so hard to get out of them. And like, what I tell people, like, you think staying in a relationship's hard? Like, getting out of one's a motherfucker. Yeah. So, like, how hard was it to get away from that significant other? Because, like, once you get clean, you want them to get clean. And, like, you, like we've been clean a long time. We've seen, uh, you know, the parasitical relationships and how toxic a relationship can be. Oh, yeah. So, um, the person that I thought I was going to marry and spend the rest of my life with, when I went into treatment... And I got out. I went into a uh, halfway house because they suggested that because I am local, you know, that Mm -hmm. I need a different type of structure. And I took the suggestion and I followed my sponsor's suggestion. They said the two she said the two people that you can't hang out with alone is your best friend since you were eight years old and your ex-fiance. So if you're going to hang out with them, make sure you're either at a meeting or other things, because those are your running partners. You have to have accountability around you guys. Right. Because there was one point where my best friend relapsed. And she decided that she wanted to be a scientist and she wanted to go do more research. And I remember showing up at her house and like, I almost relapsed too. And thank God she was selfish enough with her drugs that she didn't want to share them because in that moment I would have relapsed, you know? I wouldn't meet him by myself. I told him that if he wanted to meet me, he needed to come to a meeting. Mm -hmm. And he refused and he refused and he refused. And um, we ended up by ending it eventually. You know, and I continued along my path and he continued along his and he ended up by going to prison. He was supposed to bring into 
prison until 2021. I will always love that man. He will always have a piece of my heart because we have and hold such a significant chapter in each mm-hmm. other's lives that like we still talk like he texted me the other day he was yeah, like I saw him the other day too he's like are you up and i'm like <laughs> no motherfucker it's 10 30 at night i'm sleeping i have work in the morning mm-hmm. you know but like he comes out with me to go line dancing sometimes i give i talk to him about his girlfriends like that took time like when he was away in prison like i wrote him you know the mother of his child hates me but like we have this understanding that like no matter what I got mm-hmm. your six, mm-hmm. you know, like we got each other and we're not going to let anybody come in between us. Yeah. Even though he's not like in recovery, like I do check in with him periodically. And um, even for myself, like I remember using he, him and Carrie were the only people that were really there for me that like would pick me up. You know, he picked me up when I got jumped. Um, yeah. <laughs> he picked me up when I got jumped and I was like covered in blood and like he would spot me when I was sick. He had a script, which was fantastic, you know, and like I remember he would just like we just always had that where we would fuck over everybody except for each other. And there was a time where he did fuck me over and he like fucking took my money. He would get me back, you know, and obviously when you're using no one's like that. When you run with somebody like really run, you know, that's something that like you share at the same time. Like, even though it's a fucked up situation, it was like, it's like being in hell with somebody. You're, you know, literally, you know, like years later, you're just, now you're both out in your own little way. You're both have found a way out. You know, I can't say, you know, he's not in recovery, but I can't say he's in hell right now. No. You know, and um, it's always good to see him because, you know, people see you in the street and they don't know your story. They don't know what you had been through. And even though I can explain it on a podcast over and over, it's different when you run into somebody that was like, bro, I was there. You know, I remember what it was like for you. Mm-hmm. And or they've watched my journey of like the journey of like the progression of just watching my mug shots, you <laughs> yeah. know, and like the progression of mm-hmm. watching my life transform on social, even social media. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I'm hitting... <laughs> I'm hitting like the sky is the limit, right? Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm clashing through barriers because people said that I wouldn't be able to do it because of my background and like all because I'm clean, I'm still, I'm still able and capable of doing mm-hmm. it. Speaking of which, what made you want to go back to school? My child, single mom, you know, um, walked through a custody battle and all of that. Like me and the father of my child just don't work and that's okay. He's a wonderful, wonderful father. But I realized that like working as a tech, which is nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't enough for me and my daughter. Mm-hmm. So I went back to school and, you know, when I went to go do what I wanted to do, they told me that I wouldn't be able to. And I said, that's fine, which was to work with children. I wanted to be an elementary educator. So I changed my profession, you know, and I didn't know at the time what it was going to be. But once I did have my kid, I figured it out. You know, looking Mm -hmm. upon my journey, everybody that had ever touched my life was a social worker. That's what I am. I'm a I'm a social worker. When did you graduate? This year. Hell yeah. Yeah, I graduated this year with my master's with a 4.0. Fuck yeah, that's cool. Um, Yeah, I did. How did it feel like to graduate? (laughs) I didn't get to walk the stage due to Mm -hmm. Corona, but I did make the best of the situation. But I can tell you, from my undergrad, when I did walk that stage, I was completely crying. You know, because I was leaders lead by example. And I just want to be the best leader for my kid, Mm -hmm. you know, which I was told I could never have anyways from doctors because of my six month and topic pregnancy. And because I stayed clean, 
and I didn't leave five minutes before the miracle. Mm -hmm. I have a six-year-old beautiful little girl who became the picture and I'm the frame of that picture and she motivates me daily, even though she's a huge pain in the ass. Don't get me wrong, you know. Um, she drives me bananas sometimes, but she motivates me to do better, right? I want to know that without any man, woman, whatever, I can support me and my kid. And that's why I did do it. And when I graduated and my kid was screaming my name, mommy, from the crowd, that's it was cool. the best feeling in the world that like happy tears just mm -hmm. rolled down my face. And she didn't get to see that for my master's, but I still ordered the capping gown anyways. And I took pictures with her that's because cool. Corona can have the ceremony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it cannot have those moments though, because that's what she's going to look back and remember. And then I started fighting with the state of Florida to get registered to start working towards my LCSW. And I've been doing that for seven months. I finished class on a Tuesday. I got hired on a job on a Friday. I didn't wow. even have my actual degree. I've been in the field and working through the pandemic. Wow. You know, like my life is beyond literally my wildest dreams, mm -hmm. you know, and like even at times when I do question my membership and I'm like, oh, well, uh, maybe I can just smoke marijuana. Like I look at moments like before the podcast and I'm like, I know for a fact I just can't. Mm -hmm. But I know that it's also abnormal for an addict not to use. And I just got to keep persevering through it and talking about it. You know, I think it's going back to that question of like, what was the first year like? It was if you would ask me in my first year, what would your life look at almost 10 years clean? It, it would not be this. Mm -hmm. I think I would have short circuited myself. Like for me, like whenever I see like young girls get clean or like think they can't get clean, like I always point them to you or like have, you know, tell them about you and stuff like that. Uh, what's it been like being on the receiving end of sponsorship? Being a sponsor? Mm -hmm. I love sponsorship. <laughs> sponsorship is my favorite, you know, um, like I said, during this time, it's really easy to become invisible. You know, at the beginning of quarantine, I had 15 girls I was sponsoring. Wow, you had 15 sponsees? I did. That's crazy. <laughs> I had fuck. a whole soccer team. <laughs> Holy shit. And I mean, When was this? Before Corona? Right before quarantine hit. I've had like 7 to 10 for a solid like 10 years now. And I people think I'm crazy. That's fucking crazy to have 15 girls. And you know what's funny? During school, I had like 12 or 13. I was wow. work. I had school from... Uh, Are you a tough eight, sponsor? Maybe. Um, <laughs> I had school from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night. I was interning, working part time. I was mm -hmm. a single mom, you know, and I still made time for each and every one of them. That's and, awesome. it's, and I did. But during this time, I think I'm down to like eight mm -hmm. because it's easy to become invisible. And some of them have made the conscious decision that they want to go back and do research. Mm -hmm. And that's OK. I said I don't agree, but I support your decision and I love you. And it's okay, you know, but the best thing about sponsorship is that I think each one of my girls reflect something within me that helps me grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know for me that, uh, you know, I just seen one of my sponsees uh, the other night at a meeting and, um, you know, I tell people all the time, like I've sponsored hundreds of men, hundreds, literally over the years, everyone, oh boy, you sponsor me. And like they, you know, don't do the work and they really just want like a cool sponsor or something. And uh, over the years, I've been clean 12 years. I've only taken four people through the 12 steps. Yeah, I've taken two and I'm just starting one on the traditions. Mm -hmm. 
And it's, cool. it's beautiful. You know, after that, she wants to work concepts. I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. I'm all for it. You know? Yeah. When you have those rock star sponsees, it's like, it's really cool. It's like when you have someone who's calling you and like you're giving them assignments and they're doing it and then you're like, damn, like this motherfucker really wants to stay clean, you know? Yeah. I think what's also awesome now that like professionally I'm in the field and I know that it's not recovery, but to just see the moments when things really start click. to click mm-hmm. before they get to or they decide they want to be a 12-step member or however they may choose recovery from being in the fields and being able to really look at people from like the first, I think that's what my favorite is. You what? know, What's your favorite step? My favorite step is six and seven. I know that sounds crazy. I think, I think it's, I think they're some of the most difficult rewarding steps. Do you want to explain a little bit about them? Sure. Um, six and seven. It helped me. I've worked all 12 steps probably about five times. I'm on my seventh round right now. I'm actually on a step seven. There you go. Um, but what it was for me is that it brought to light the defects that I have and how I fall short on them. Six is the flat tire. Seven is the shortcoming, right? Mm-hmm. Flat tire, shortcoming. Six is defect. Seven is the shortcoming. Step six is the flat tire. Seven step is driving on the flat tire anyways, knowing that I have that defect. It helps me change and it helps me become a better person. It gives me a different perspective. And, and it's crazy because a defect can like literally hide as another defect, mm-hmm. right? And it comes all back for me to my childhood, literally. It literally all comes back to my childhood of looking yet again for that outside validation when I feel low self-esteem, low self-worth, if I'm people-pleasing, caretaking, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. And just knowing the names of them, like, because, you know, I live my whole life thinking I know psychology or I know how to read people, whatever. Like, there are some character defects. I just didn't know what they were called. And if you don't know what they're called, you can't spot it. And I remember um, being on my sixth step and talking to my sponsor, and he was like, um, hey, you want to come to the meeting tonight? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I would do this. I would say, oh, I don't know. Knowing I'm not going, right? Like, I'm definitely (laughs) not going. No chance in hell I'm not going. I'm going. But I would say, oh, we'll see. And that comes from an insecurity where I don't want to say no to somebody because they're not going to like me. So I say, let's see, because I'm scared of the rejection of them thinking that I'm disappointing their expectation, Mm -hmm. right? So my sponsor was like, you can say no. You don't have to people, please. And that's when I was like, wow. Is that what that's called all that? That's here? what that shit is. I rem- and you see it all the time now. You're like, oh, you know, just say no, dude. It's okay. No's a whole sentence. Yep. It's okay to say no. Mm-hmm. You don't have to people, please. And we get clean and we learn these things and we start to live differently. We start to think differently. I think the biggest defect of character for me that I learned about was emotionally unfaithful. I didn't know that was a thing. Like, I thought that, like, if you were in a relationship and you just didn't have sex or kiss or anything, like, you weren't cheating. Like, you were loyal. Mm -hmm. And then I come into recovery and my second sponsor told me that, like, you are so emotionally unfaithful. I said, excuse me? What is that? Like, I had no idea that that was a thing. That, like, if I'm hiding something, like, I'm not being faithful, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, if I'm admitting something, I'm not being honest and, like... Deleting the text. Yeah, like, all of that, that is being emotionally unfaithful. Mm -hmm. And, like, I learned that. I learned that being clean. I learned that emotional blackmail is a thing. Like, Mm -hmm. throwing things in people's faces, being silent treatment. Like, everything that I, like, grew up in my household, it started to click for me that, like, like, holy shit. Like, for example... 
two weeks ago, I was helping my grandparents put up a Christmas tree mm-hmm. and something went through the bottom of my foot. My grandfather, I was crying, bloody murder, tears coming by. Yeah. So my grandfather told me and it clicked for me. He said, stop crying. It's barely bleeding. Just put iodine on it. Mind you, I had to go to the hospital and get stitches. But in that moment, I realized that's where children are seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. Shove your feelings under the blanket. Don't cry. Don't cry. Everything's going to be fine. Like learning from a very young age, don't talk about it. Just suck it up. Keep going. Like mind over matter, X, Y, Z, like all these false belief systems that I had clung on to that weren't even mine. Mm -hmm. It's like, I got to break up with them. Like (laughs) they're not even my belief systems. Like who is Dana? without my parents' belief systems, without, and that is what recovery has afforded me. Yeah. um, And that's interesting because a lot of times I talk about what you just said, whether you could talk about like shutting your feelings off. And in relationships, I do that. So like in a relationship, I know a lot of men shut down and I never knew what shutting down was. Like you're never like in someone's house and they're like, oh, my dad shut down today. Like, (laughs) like people don't talk about shutting down or like men, how they like, act in relationships but um i remember the first time i shut down and like even in relationships i would realize that when i was having a difficult conversation typically when a girl is wondering if we're going to be boyfriend and girlfriend what is this like like i wouldn't communicate or have expectations so i would just shut down not say anything and then just try to move on the conversation what are we doing tomorrow because i just don't want to talk about the difficult conversation to me, shutting down is more of a addict quality than shooting heroin. Yeah. Because I remember the first time I shut down. And um, I know it sounds like a silly story, but when I was doing my fourth step, this was one of the most fucked up shit I wrote about. Like, this is what was really pissing me off in my fourth step. And I remember when I was a little kid, my family took us to Kennedy Space Center. And it was like, you know, a Kennedy Space Center, whatever. And I remember we drove up there and I saw a commercial on TV for Bush Gardens. Mm. And I really wanted to go to Bush Gardens. I didn't know that it was in Tampa. I thought like it was next to Orlando or something. So I was so excited to go to Bush Gardens and we were already there. Like, can we go? And my dad said, oh, I don't know. And I kept saying, like, I really want to. Go. And here's people pleasing. Like my dad's like, oh, well, we'll see. He doesn't want to say no to me. Right. I'm watching the commercial again and I really want to go. And I tell my dad, like, tomorrow, can we go to Bush Gardens? And my dad says, yeah. And when he said, yeah, I was like, fuck, yeah, we're going to Bush Gardens. I could not believe we're fucking going to Bush Gardens. I was like, it's that. I told everybody we're going to Bush Gardens tomorrow. Later that day or that night, we were um, in front of my relatives who had just met us there and they didn't go to Kennedy Space Center. And in front of me, he tells them that tomorrow we're going back to Kennedy Space Center for the second time. And I pretend that I'm not upset and I wait later till everyone's gone. And I go up to my dad and I said, dad, are we going to... Bush Gardens tomorrow or are we going to Kennedy Space Center? He goes, we're going to Bush Gardens. I was like, all right. Later that night, I got a piece of paper and I wanted him to sign it. And I was like, dad, can you sign this saying that we're going to Bush Gardens? And I kept bugging him about it. And he was like, no, I'm not signing that. Like, get that away from me or whatever. And I was, yeah, I should have been an attorney. Right. And uh, I remember he signed it. And the next day we fucking went to Kennedy Space Center. And when I tell you that I didn't act like I was upset at all, like I really didn't. My dad looked over at me and he was like, are you mad? And I was like, no, why would I be mad? And I was so mad, so mad. And so like sometimes I get so angry that I want to save it for later, if that makes sense. Like I'm going to get so resentful that I'm going to hold on to this resentment and blow up on, and you, blow later. Up on you later when you don't expect it. 
And I did this my whole life where I didn't communicate my feelings. I didn't tell you that I was upset. And when you're a kid and you're upset, no one really tries to pry you to say what's wrong because at least you're not talking, right? It's just it's shut, so fucked you know, up. they're like, oh, you're not upset. No, I'm good. Okay, good. Shut the fuck up. No one really says like, it's okay to say what's going on. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm feeling or whatever. They kind of, and that's normal for parents, you know, but I remember that was the first time that I shut down. That was the first time that I was upset and I chose not to show that I was upset. Yeah. I think, uh. I call that the switch where you turn like, it off. yeah, I just flip it on. It's like inhumane, mm -hmm. you know, and I've done that like last year when I went through a huge breakup and in, in the 12 step fellowship, like I had to be mindful. Like I literally shut down. I dated one person in between and like I've been by myself and like, I'm okay. You know, mm -hmm. it's been over a year, you know, and I'm, I'm okay. But during that time I flipped my switch and I can't say that, like, it's been easy to switch it back on. But, like, if we look back at my life, like, I learned it from a very young age. Mm -hmm. That's why even when my kid's being a butt, like, I'll tell her, like, go sit on your bed. You don't curse anymore? No, I do. <laughs> I do. I curse all the time. Don't, don't, let, don't let me fool you. I'm just trying to be a little more G-rated. Um, never know whose ears this may <laughs> fall upon, <laughs> you know, but I'll tell my kid to go sit on her bed mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about it. And I'll be like, how are you feeling? And I don't know if that's just the therapist in me or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it may be. But like, I encourage my child to tell me how she is feeling after we talk, you know, sometimes I and won't. And that it's safe, right? It is. Like there's not, like, I'm not going to emotionally blackmail you no. about this later. But I also teach her that safety lives inside of her and trust lives inside of her mm -hmm. and security lives inside of her. And I think that that's really important because I never learned that. I was always like, as a kid, like we learned that safety and security is outside of mm -hmm. us from our moms and dads. And like, then we learned to trust our parents and like it was outside of us externally where I'm teaching my kid cool. that it lives inside of her, you know, or I'm doing my best. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, either way, I, I should probably start spending money and putting it aside mm -hmm. because like I'm doing something and I think it's right. My kid's going to probably think it's wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, I mean, I'm just doing my best, you know. Um, Does your daughter know about that you're in recovery? Is she old enough to conceptualize that? So I think she started to figure it out when I had about seven years clean. Um, I went up to my friend's house in Boynton Beach. They brought me out a cake and it had the number seven on it. And she's like, mommy, you're seven years old. <laughs> And I'm like, no, baby, mommy has seven years clean. And she's like, oh, in those meetings? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, let me go call my sponsor. And she'll be like <laughs> pretending to talk to her sponsor wow. or talking to her sponsees. So like cool. she understands. Like I, I do my best not to bring her into the meeting with me. But she does know that mommy is in recovery or clean or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. She understands sponsor, sponsee, step work. You know, she does understand she knows that. those terms. Yeah. Have you gone to therapy since being in recovery? Absolutely. Every therapist needs a therapist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I went to, th I haven't been in therapy, but like two years ago I went. Like now that I have gone through it with years clean, it was like, it was like cleaning a room that I didn't know was dirty. It was like the coolest thing I've done because we work steps and we go to meetings and all this stuff. But like getting professional help after you've been clean 10 years, it's so easy to to think that you don't have anything going on. 
because we, we really know yeah because we know all the lingos and we know like you know all the concepts of things and we don't think we need therapy and now i'm like wow i should have went to therapy seven years ago you know i think i think the thing about the 12-step fellowship is that it really shuns outside help although our traditions talk about Seeking that, outside help. Yeah. It, yeah, it talks about that anything that affects our recovery is not an outside issue in our traditions. And I'm very, very literature based and people can argue with me all day, but I'll show you exactly where it says it. So like, let's debate, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, but I believe that the steps can help me for many, many things, but there's just some issues that the 12 steps or a sponsor may not have to help guide you through them and they should not because as a sponsor that's the only job that they should have mm-hmm. is guiding you through the steps it like even though i'm a therapist i don't like i'm not like hey let's talk cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational interviewing or you know let's l- work through that trauma that's on your fourth step like mm-hmm. no like your issues are going to start to arise you might need to seek outside help Yeah. And I don't want to blur the boundaries where I'm your sponsor and your therapist. You should go like I have sponsees that have severe trauma. And I'm like, we're going to get to that with a professional. Like we're going (laughs) to talk about that through the steps. But at some point you need to seek professional help and you should invest in that. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes people make the argument, oh, I don't have money for that. But you buy fucking Red Bull and fucking bullshit all day or whatever. But like it's it's the best money you'll ever spend is going to therapy, you know, yep. in my opinion. And it's not easy to find a therapist. Like That's good. I went to five different therapists and I was just looking and looking and I just felt like no one knew what the fuck they were talking about. And like I hired a therapist for a living. So I have like a, you know, chip on my shoulder or whatever. I remember I went to this one dude and I, he was referred to me. And I talked to this guy for three, four, I think it was four hours the first time. And I, it felt like a blink of an eye. Like I just spilled everything about me that was going on. I went to him for probably like five, six months consecutively and it was phenomenal. What was uh, your experience like going to therapy? So I'm still currently in therapy. Um, I've been going to therapy for the past year and a half because as a therapist- How did you find a good one? It was referred to me by cool. a friend in the program that also went and also um, my ex- as well. So it was like two people went to the same therapist and I was like, oh, well, uh, I might want to check this person out. And I've been with my therapist for a year and a half. You know, as soon as I started interning and one of my professors said, every therapist needs a therapist. And after I started interning, I had a caseload. I understood when it clicked what that was. I started to go to therapy and I've learned that like as a therapist that has a caseload, we hold people's emotions and feelings and then it starts to affect us. So I need that outlet beside my sponsor, you know what I mean, to talk Mm -hmm. to. But like I need a professional that understands that side of me, you know. But what I've personally have worked on is going back to my childhood a lot of inner child work. I've done a lot, a lot of inner child work. It's crazy, right? I love inner child Mm -hmm. work. I love, love, love. I'm getting ready to do one now. That's why I'm so eager to get my sponsees through the steps because I'm like, bro, the steps is fantastic. I'm not saying that the steps isn't like fucking mind-blowing. Like the steps will fucking change your whole life. But there's like some extracurricular shit I like people to do, but I can't get you to do that until you fucking learn how to add. You know what I mean? And the inner child shit blew me away like i had no because i don't have childhood trauma i used to think it was for people who had like this childhood trauma but we have trauma that is ingrained in us that or parents don't know they're passing down so it's not that they're bad parents just in the way they communicate the way they talk to you as a kid and someone could tell you to shut up as a kid 
And that could traumatize you. And for that the rest could traumatize you where like you don't like to speak up and you don't feel like you have a voice mm-hmm. or like you think about that before you say something because you have like this innate fear where like if somebody hit you, you're like scared that someone might hit you or you're getting a car accident. You're scared to drive. You have like this flashback and it could be as simple as someone telling you shut up as a kid that for some reason your mind just goes to it like how we cut ourselves like we mentally cut ourselves with past memories mm-hmm. over and over about shit that wasn't even that big of a deal like that story i said about kennedy space center years later i'm like i don't even know if it happened like that but i i memorize i'm <laughs> that's how that's you my real memory i swear to god when i was doing step work like they ask you like is anything exaggerated or whatever and i was thinking about that story i was like no i don't think that shit's exaggerated that's how that like in my mind that is how it went down i don't know because i was young right but those memories we have harm us today when we relive them yeah or like when my mom said i'll see you tomorrow and she never shows up so that affects my relationships down the line romantically Mm -hmm. where i want to be intimate and like i already have trust issues and then if i look back on the patterns of the people that i've picked they either aka abandon like the relationship right by sleeping with someone else or it just doesn't end up working out right and i what i've learned from doing inner child work is that as an adult i can't be an abandoned like i can't abandon the only person that can abandon me is me that's cool you know and like i don't know i just i love i just love the whole full experience like i was just thinking like as an adult no one can abandon me no only Uh, i can yeah i'm I'm an adult, you know. I'm an adult. Like, who can abandon me? Not my, not even my ex partner that I was with for two years. You know that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with mm-hmm. that individual, and like she abandoned me. You know, like she stepped out on me. You know what I mean? But like, what happened was is that like even though it it opened that wound, I found out that that individual was the face of a trigger for me that brought me all the way back to where is my mom? Where is mm-hmm. my dad? Where I also didn't feel safe in that relationship sometimes. You know, I didn't feel safe sometimes mm-hmm. to speak because anger. And it went back to children are seen and not heard. So it, like that relationship triggered a lot of healing inside for little Dana. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, big, big fan. Have you done EMDR? I have not. I have not. Oh, it's done so it. crazy. It's actually, I'm actually trying to get certified for it. Oh, though. that's cool. Yeah, I've, I've done EMDR. I've been hypnotized. Wow. Yeah, they did like that. It was so crazy. Like, <laughs> I, I'm over here, like, and I'm like, off. Like, as soon as I made a decision that I need therapy, I was like, do your worst. Like, fuck me up with this therapy. Like, I want to do all the crazy shit. And I remember this guy was like, you know, have you tried hypnotherapy? I'm like, no, let's do it. Is that why those masks are there? Yes. (laughs) And I remember, um, you know, obviously it's not like the movies or something like that, but we do so many things for ourselves, like working out and eating healthy and the clothes we wear and the shit that we buy. But the fact that so many people don't spend a couple hundred dollars to fucking go to therapy. It blows my mind. Like I meet people that aren't addicts. And when you tell them, like I told someone I was in therapy once. They probably thought you were fucked up. They're like, I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really sorry you're going through that. Like, and am I, I'm like, wow. It's like, it'd be like someone saying, yeah, I'm going to the gym. And they're like, wow, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, to be honest, like that's quite frankly, besides just writing on my step work and doing my therapy myself, that's quite frankly the only healthy thing I do for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, uh, everything else I kind of do for my kid. You know, my kid comes before me. Um, every dollar and cent that I have goes for mm-hmm. her. So You'll get to a point where that flips. I know. You know, and I, I can commend you for, you know, being responsible, you know, being a good parent. And that's what being a parent's about. You know, you start putting your kid ahead of you. But at some point, there needs to be that switch back where you're like, okay, I need to take care of Dana or I'm not going to be a parent at all, mm-hmm. you know? So I appreciate you coming out. I love you very much. I love you Thank too. you. I know Thank you didn't want to do this. I didn't, but I always say yes to you because of what space you hold in my heart and appreciate my that. recovery. Love you. I love you too. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.